On November 7th, 2007, a baby was born in a remote village in the northern state of Bihar in northern India. The birth was dubbed a miracle. Throngs of people ascended on the family's home so they could get a glimpse of this miracle child and obtain a blessing. They considered this baby to be sacred and divine. So much so that the family had to go into hiding, overwhelmed by the crowds as word spread across the land. You see, this baby was born with four arms and four legs. The parents thought that this baby girl was an avatar or a reincarnation of the Hindu goddess Lakshmi. They named her Lakshmi. Little did they know that this was a rare condition called Ischiopagus, a congenital birth with a parasitic twin. The baby that was thought to be God was nothing more than a pregnancy gone wrong, an abnormal birth with an ugly deformity. In order to let this baby live a normal life, a team of 30 surgeons worked in eight-hour shifts and performed this intricate surgery of separating this parasitic twin. Amazingly, many Hindus were angry because they honestly thought that this was a goddess. In fact, they believed that if you're born with an extra appendage, like a finger or a toe or something, that you're not to remove that, because that is an extra gift from God. This morning, I want to focus on another birth. And this birth also took place in a small, relatively unknown village, Bethlehem of Ephrata. But this one was a real miracle. This one was an amazing, unprecedented, extraordinary, unique, marvelous marvel of a birth. This birth was unlike any other the world has ever seen. One of a kind, never to happen again. It was truly a wonder of wonders. This was a birth that would change the world. The birth was anticipated for hundreds of years as people were waiting and longing for the arrival of this special person. They were on the lookout. Wise men from the east were studying the scriptures and waiting for the arrival of this special birth. The ruler of the land was troubled about this birth. This birth was rooted in in biblical prophecy and foretold by prophets of old. This was a miracle. The effects of this amazing birth divided human history into two periods, B.C. and A.D. Yes, the Hindus have their calendar, the Muslims have their calendar, the Sikhs have their calendar, the Chinese have their calendar. In fact, you're about to enter the year of the rabbit But let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, today is December 19th, 2010 A.D. And every time you write that date, you are making reference to that first Christmas. This morning I want to share with you three truths that are often overlooked in the story of Christmas. And the first one is the faithfulness of God. The birth of Christ forever established a living testimony of the faithfulness of God in keeping his word. Today we lit the candle of prophecy in the Advent tradition. The candle of prophecy reminds us that God is faithful. He keeps his word. 
This word is trustworthy. This word that we have is trustworthy because the author is trustworthy. This word is true because God is true. And when God says something, he's going to do it. And when there's a prophecy, it's going to happen. Because God is behind it. He is faithful. In fact, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. When the fullness of time had come. What does that mean? That means there was a specific time. God had a timetable. At exactly the precise moment in history, God sent his son. You see, the time was right. The faithful remnant of the Jews were longing for Christ to come as their Messiah. Their national dreams had faded. Their personal aspirations were being suppressed by tyrannical Rome. Judaism was fragmented by haggling internal factions. Its true teachings were obscured by the mountains of religious minutiae created by the teachers who missed the point of what Jehovah was trying to do among his people. It was an impoverished world. Rome had bled them dry materially. Religious leaders had misled them spiritually. There was no voice of the prophet in the land. They were waiting for the silence to be broken. Ladies and gentlemen, the cannon was closed. And there was 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so they were waiting for this silence to be broken. There was plenty of time during these 400 years for people to study the scriptures and the prophecies of the Old Testament. So they knew that one day the voice of God was going to be heard in an infant's cry. Deity would invade humanity. God would step into time. Not in some grand majestic way as some people thought, but in the humblest of ways. Israel's hope would be born of a woman. His word is true. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He promised a redeemer and he fulfilled that promise. With all the genealogies, the covenants, the prophecies of the promised redeemer converging into that infant lying in a manger, God celebrated this event With a spectacular announcement as the night sky exploded with dazzling light. And the angel appeared with heavenly hosts proclaiming, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Which shall be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke chapter 2. You see, this was a fulfillment of the prophecy given to Isaiah. The prophecy that was given to Isaiah. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a name, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. At a time of great crises in Israel, God made this promise to the house of David 700 years before Jesus was born. He made this promise and he spoke through the prophet Isaiah and gave them a promise of a Messiah. You see, the nation of Israel was preoccupied with searching for signs for God. In the Old Testament, God often gave signs 
uh, as a way of, of letting people know what he was going to do. And the New Testament, Jews would always ask for a sign. In fact, Paul writes to Corinthians, I think in chapter 1, and he says, Jews are always wanting a sign. Well, Isaiah presents to the nation of Israel the first of three premier signs. The first one, which is where we're going to spend our time, is the virgin birth, Isaiah seven fourteen. The second sign was the resurrection. Remember the Jews coming to Jesus and said, give us a sign. And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And it, and it very clearly showed he was talking about himself, about his body, the death and the resurrection. That was the second sign for the children of Israel. And then there's a third sign. And that is the second coming. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30 talks about a sign for us when the Son of Man is going to be coming with glory in the clouds. And how we long for that. You know, every time we celebrate communion, it's a reminder of what? That he's coming back. It's a, it's a time to look forward. Because he says, do this until he comes. Until I come again. So here in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, it's a sign that has come directly from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here's the sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now here's the question. In fact, in in chapter 8, if you look at chapter 8 and look at verse uh, 8 and verse 10, the prophet is told that the God of Israel is Emmanuel. And so, but the question here is, how can a virgin have a child? That's an impossibility. In fact, that's the question that Mary asked Gabriel when Gabriel, the messenger sent from God, said, you're going to be having a child. And she said to the angel in Luke chapter 1 and verse 34, how can this be? I am a virgin. And the answer was astounding. Recorded by Luke, the beloved physician. By the way, the beloved physician, you know, that's a scriptural term. Paul referred to Luke with that in that way in Colossians chapter 4 verse 14. Anyway, Dr. Luke records this for us that the angel come and tells Mary, Mary, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God and I love this last part. Mary, Mary, listen to me, Mary. Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Don't forget that now. Mary was saying, how can this be? And so the angel was explaining, listen, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God is going to come upon you. And the power of the Most High. Do you know that every Jew understood immediately when they saw that or heard that, the, the word, the Most High. When you heard the power of the Most High, they knew immediately who that was. Because that phrase refers to Jehovah God. And so Mary, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The power of Jehovah is going to come upon you. And it's for that reason that the Holy Offspring is going to be called the Son of God. Do you realize we got the Trinity in this verse? We have God the Holy Spirit, we have God the Father, and we have the Son of God, all three in one verse. 
Some of you students preparing to go to seminary, make a note. Might be a quiz question. (laughs) But Mary, remember this. And then the angel, basically what the angel was saying is, Mary, we don't need a man in this deal. God alone can bring the Messiah into this world in human flesh in a miraculous conception which would guarantee the sinlessness of the Son of God. Mary, I know, you got the XX chromosome. But we don't need Joseph's XY chromosomes. Because God is going to supply that. In a supernatural, miraculous conception. And that's the reason that this child is going to be holy. It's not going to have the normal sin nature. This is a marvel, isn't it? And Mary finally understood. The reason the offspring was going to be holy was not because Mary was holy. The reason the offspring was holy is because God was involved in this miraculous conception. There is no indication anywhere that Mary was holy. There is not a single scriptural reference that says that Mary was without sin. In fact, I want you to notice what Mary said when she finally understood it all. She said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God. And notice the next two words, my savior. Mary needed a savior, just like we need a savior. She was just like us. She was not sinless. Now I'm sure she was a wonderful, godly, young Jewish teenager. I'm sure she studied the scriptures. I'm sure she was an obedient child. I'm sure she tried to please the Lord in all her ways. And that's why God chose her. But she was not sinless. She needed a savior. And so this amazing prophecy is given to Isaiah... And it basically says that you're going to have a child and this child is going to have two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, which leads us to the second truth that we often overlook in our Christmas story. And that is that the dual nature of Jesus Christ. This stupendous miracle of incarnation. A divine person adding on a true human nature to his personhood without becoming two persons. That's the miracle. And you know what? That was essential for our salvation. He was not just a man. Not even a sinless man like Adam was before the fall. But he was one person who was both God and man. Therefore he is fully capable of paying for the sins of the whole world upon the cross. Nothing is impossible with God. This dual nature of our Savior is further revealed in the next chapter in Isaiah. We've gone from 7 to 8 in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. The dual nature of our Savior is so clearly revealed here because you look at this prophecy and and Isaiah said, for a child will be born to us. 
And that is human nature. A child is born. But notice, a son will be given to us. That's divine nature. And the government will rest upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Hey, Mighty God. That's God. It says it right there. This child is going to be called Mighty God. What more do you want? Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. One person with two natures. God. Fully God. Man. And fully man. This is an amazing mystery. This is a mystery that a person who has always been God is now going to take on humanity. Who is this person? He is the eternal word of God. That's what we hear in John chapter 1 and verse 1. The Logos in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word that is used there for the word is Logos. This is the eternal Logos, the eternal Word of God, the eternal Son of God. And in verse 3 it says, And all things were made by Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. He is the creator of the world. He he is the angel of Jehovah who appeared to Moses and to Abraham and to many others in the Old Testament that we refer to as theophanies. He is the one who accompanied the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness when his glory filled the tabernacle. He is the expression of God. He is the one who reveals God. He is the one who manifests God to men. That's this child. And at a point in history predetermined by God. The eternal flesh, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is one of the greatest miracles, probably the greatest miracle. The turning point of all of history. When God became a man. You know, it's something that I can't fully understand. I mean, how can the one who by definition is life, experience death. How can the one who never sleeps, Psalm 121, he neither slumbered nor sleeps. How can the one who never sleeps, sleep in a boat? How can the one who never hungers, who doesn't need anybody, Or anything who is self-existent. How can someone like that be hungry and thirsty? How can the one who is the eternal word be born as a baby who cannot speak? How can the one who upholds all things by the word of his power be unable to utter a word? No one apart from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit can fully explain that truth. And that's where faith comes in. Because we embrace by faith the biblical teaching of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what God wants us to do, right? He wants us to be men and women of faith. We accept it by faith. 
You know, one of the problems we have is we don't really live by faith, do we? We're so comfortable. We're affluent. Our needs are met. We, uh, we are, we are self-reliant. I mean, we've got it all. You know, we're proud of ourselves. And so there isn't really room for faith in our daily lives, is there? And that's a shame because he wants us to live by faith. In fact, the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And what is faith? The Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. And so when you don't understand it all, that's when faith comes in. And faith pleases God. The Bible says, God the Son became flesh. The eternal word at a moment in time in a manger in Bethlehem received the name Jesus the Messiah. Isn't it interesting? He was Jesus before he became Jesus. And then you say, you know, why? Why, why did, if, this, if, God, if God is so powerful, if, if, if he's really God, why did he have to go through this route? Why did he have to become a man, you know? Why did he have to do this human thing, you know? Well, the Bible gives us an answer to that. In Hebrews chapter 2, notice what it says. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death are subject to slavery all their lives. Do you see that? He had to become a man because we, because of us, because we share in flesh and blood. In order to deliver us, he had to be made like unto us. Like all Passover lambs, which are raised specifically to be sacrificed, Jesus was born in order to die. In order to be that ultimate sacrifice for sin. And that leads us to the third truth that is often overlooked. And that is the provision of a final sacrificial lamb. Jesus humbled himself to be born as a human being. And became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, so that we could have forgiveness of sin and everlasting life through faith in Him. He was the final sacrifice. Notice with me uh, the infinite self emptying of our Savior that He experienced on that first Christmas before He could become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at Philippians chapter 2, the passage that was read earlier. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
You see, Jesus existed in the form of God. He was God. He was God the Son. He existed from eternity past. There is one God that is triune in nature, composed of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all equal. Equally God. Equally eternal. Equally existent in and of themselves. But the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He did not consider his glory as something to be grasped and not to let go. He didn't say, oh, I love this. I love this glory. I love where I am. I like this fellowship between the three of us. I kind of like where I am. In fact, the New American Standard says, he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. He laid aside his glory, his outward manifestation of his deity. He became a man like you and me. He he looked like an ordinary man. He emptied himself of the outward manifestation of his glory, which he had before the world began. John 17 verse 5. There wasn't any blinking light on his forehead that said, Son of God. He didn't have a halo. He didn't have a neon sign. Nobody bumped into him and said, whoops, you must be God. There was nothing about him externally that communicated deity. He emptied himself of the form of God and took on the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. The eternal son of God became, I want you to listen to me now. The eternal Son of God became a servant. Now you might think there's no difference between becoming a man and a servant. I, I think there's a difference. The culture in which I was born and raised, we have servants. Everybody has servants. Even the poor people have servants. It's a way of life. It's a way of giving employment to different people for different skills and different tasks. A servant is the lowliest of the lowly. Jesus not only became a man, but he became a servant. There's one incident from the life of Christ that has impacted me so powerfully. And it was this. In the Last Supper... The night before he was going to get betrayed, Jesus gave the servant a day off. And after all the disciples were seated, reclining at the table, he went and got a basin and a towel. And he did something shocking. You have to live in the East to understand the full impact of what he did. Western societies don't get it completely, what that meant. Even today, especially in India, when a young person arrives at his grandfather's house, the first thing he does is touches the feet of the grandfather. And grandfather lifts him up and says, God bless you. Touches the feet. You never, never, ever touch a feet of a servant. You only touch the feet of somebody above you. 
Somebody who you deeply respect and honor. And Jesus, not only did he touch, he washed their feet. That's the story of Christmas. The incarnation, the incarnation manifests to us the incomparable, the incomprehensible, the unimaginable, the unspeakable, the unbelievable love of God who had infinite compassion on us. On us? Who are we? Who are we? We are a world of filthy unclean, selfish, egocentric, sinful human beings, and yet he chose to send a deliverer to save us. That's the essence of Christmas. And my friends, it extends far beyond the dimensions of a calendar year. It even transcends time, and it delivers a drama that only deity could produce. The tragedy of our day is our failure to transmit the essence of the miracle of the incarnation as the heart and soul of what we pause to commemorate. In my own lifetime, I have witnessed the shocking decline of Christianity in this nation. It seems to me we are, there is a relentless war against Christians. Postmodernism, with its denial of any absolute truth, has hijacked even basic biblical truths. And you know what? The root cause of where we are, this conundrum of what we find ourselves in, is the condition in the human heart. And this in and of itself cannot cure, cannot cure itself. Just ask anybody who's in this politically correct camp. Say, do you think um, there possibly is a depravity issue with the human soul and they're going to look at you as you'd be laughed out of the room recently George Barna completed a survey 5,000 people were interviewed over the past 11 months and these are his conclusions of where we are today actually Buck sent this to me a few days ago here it is first one the Christian church is becoming less Theologically literate. All right? Number two, Christians are becoming more ingrown and less outreach oriented. Growing numbers of people are less interested in spiritual principles and more desirous of learning pragmatic solutions for life. Among Christians, interest in participating in community action is escalating. The postmodern insistence on tolerance is winning over the Christian church. This has been going on for several years, actually. But notice number six. The influence of Christianity on culture and individual lives is largely invisible. I've seen it happen just in the years I've been here. 
To me, it's ironic that Jesus Christ is being kicked out of public institutions of the very nation he undergirded from its infancy to its spectacular rise as the model of freedom and justice that is the envy of the world. Christmas has been trivialized to a festival of commercial extravagance and a holiday to have fun and frolic to the point where they have now removed the word Christ and the politically correct thing is to say, happy holidays. You're going to hear that from store to store to store to store. You know what you should say when someone says happy holidays to you? Put a smile on your face and say it. Merry Christmas! How the heck did you think you got these holidays in the first place? (laughs) The world's comprehension of this amazing event seems to be buried in the wrinkled wrapping paper laying on the living room floor. That may well be the extent of what the grand entrance of the Messiah has been reduced to. But beyond the world's stunted spiritual understanding. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the facts don't change. The fact remains. Truth remains. And it's not going anywhere. It's here to stay. Because the word of God says it will last forever. No matter what man tries to do. No matter what culture tries to do. No matter what society tries to do. The fact is going to be there. The truth is remain. And the truth is that God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ to be that final sacrifice. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The writer to the Hebrews makes it clear that this was the final sacrifice. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 12 through 14. If there's any doubt in your mind. Notice, it says, By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And notice the phrase, once and for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And notice, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice. I want you to think about this. Think about all of the sacrifices that took place in history. Hundreds, thousands, and thousands, and thousands of lambs that were slain. And all the blood that was spilled. And the the Bible says it really didn't forgive sin. Well, what did it do? All that blood that was spilled over hundreds of years and all the lambs that were sacrificed, what happened? Well, it all got put into this account and the sin kept building up and over and get rolled over and rolled over and rolled over. And it all was made into this huge account, the sin of the world. And that is what was laid on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Can you imagine the burden? Your sin was part of it. In fact, this last lamb 
this is the last lamb to be sacrificed. And this sacrifice takes care of sin, past, present, and future, because it says, once and for all. Christmas made that possible. Christmas made that possible for God to supply that final lamb unlike any other to take away the sin of the whole world. God and sinners reconciled. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Born To raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Have you experienced the second birth? Jesus came so that you could be born again. If you haven't, I pray that you will. Before this season is over, before the day is over, I pray that you will commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith and trust in him alone. That's the reason he came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Glory to the newborn king. Hallelujah. God acted in a way that only he could foreknow. And he had weighed both its cost and consequence before he hung the world in space. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 20. Would you pray with me? Father, we don't know where to begin. Our hearts are so full of gratitude. We don't deserve your love. We've let you down. We failed you. We ask your forgiveness. But Father, we do we do want to rejoice. We want to rejoice because of that gift you gave us. The gift of your son and the gift of eternal life through him. Oh, how we rejoice. Father, I pray that this season as we get together with our families and our friends. That we would pause. Pause to thank you for who you are, what you've done. How much you've loved us. How much you suffered for us. So we could live forever. Oh, how we thank you. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you are a trustworthy God. Thank you that your prophecies have come true. And we wait for the other half of the prophecies to come true. That you're going to come again. This time, not as a little baby, but as one who is going to conquer. And we long for that. And we long to be part of the army with you. Thank you, Father, for this time, for this time of the year. And may we be grateful and may you use us to spread this news to those who don't know you. So many out there have no clue as to what Christmas is all about. I pray that you give us boldness and courage to spread the news. We love you, we honor you, and we worship you today. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord,
be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Thank you all. God bless you.